Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. The mission for our show is simple. We want to help organizations make better business decisions. So for all those who are joining us for the first time, I just want to welcome you to the Kelly family. If you have a question you're wrestling with, if you would like to get a hold of myself or Phil or any one of our faculty, or you know of someone that would make a great guest for our show, send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-E-P-U-I So this episode is going to be a little different. This week, we are doing a live taping of the 2020 economic outlook forecast featuring a few of our faculty members and some of the Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce members who are going to give a projection of next year's economic outlook. So without further ado, here's Phil Powell. Well, welcome to the Indianapolis Outlook Panel for our our annual business outlook panel, which is a long tradition here at the Kelly School. Um, And welcome to IEPY. Uh, This is a great venue. And we wanted to bring you to campus here to sort of showcase, and I'll talk about it in a minute, showcase sort of our, our new mission, our, our evolving mission here in the Indianapolis region. And today we're sort of uh, experimenting a little bit with a, with a slight change in, 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 in the panel. You're going to get to the forecasts, but we're going to also talk about how the city and the Chamber of Commerce are attacking some of the more structural economic challenges here in the region and how that interacts with what we expect in 2020 and how the Kelly School is contributing from that from all its different units on both campuses. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Associate Dean of Academic Programs here in the IUPUI campus, Phil Powell. Dean Kessner sends her greetings from Bloomington. Also today, uh, this is a big, this is a, this is a big, big day for us in, in terms of firsts. Uh, we're also taping today our ROI podcast. So for those of you who may not know, the Kelly School puts out a weekly podcast, rightly named the Return on Investment, the ROI podcast, to give you a sort of boost during the week about how to be more productive and more inspiring and more competitive. Um, And we've had over 100 episodes launched. So we're going to, one of our episodes will be this this session and this forecast. Uh, So check out the ROI podcast. um, And you can find that on 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 the Kelly website. Also, look behind me here. This is a big year for us. IUPUI is 50 years old. Indiana University is 200 years old. And the Kelly School is 100 years old. Now, how's that for convergence? (laughs) All right. So 2020 better be a good year. Better deliver on that for us, panelists. but, uh, you know, in a year like this, there's, there's a lot going on in the world. And we're here to talk about that. And we're here not only to, to, to paint the picture of what, what's ahead for the next year, but also some innovative ways that we're tackling those challenges here in the region and at Indiana University. Uh, three years ago, our dean, I.D. Kessner, set forward a vision and a challenge to, our, to the Kelly School community to make our presence here at IUPUI uh, a little bit more visible and and take a leadership role in driving prosperity in the Indianapolis region. And uh, we've been just west of downtown almost as long as IUPUI has been around for 50 years. And as Indianapolis takes off and faces challenges, the the Kelly School community has, has, has really embraced this challenge. And when it comes down to it, our presence here at IUPUI has two missions. We're here to, to, to generate knowledge and more importantly, even more importantly, graduate talent that makes Indianapolis companies globally competitive. And also, just as equally, we're also here to broaden business opportunity and economically challenged communities in this region. And so that has formed a new strategy. And we're calling it a, a front porch strategy. We're sort of replacing the ivory tower with our front porch to be more more engaged in the community, be more of a partner with our state and local leaders, with our institutions, to help drive forth this prosperity. And it really comes down to talent and economic mobility. And if you were to summarize the vision that we're trying to implement here for the Kelly School at IEPY, 
and also leveraging our, our great assets on the Bloomington campus, we want to build talent pipelines that extend back into our economically challenged communities here in the region, and as young as we can go, and pull that talent forward into the industries, our tradable industries, that export goods and services to other industries in other countries. And the Kelly Schools, along with the Chamber and other, 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 other leading organizations here in Indianapolis, is really working hard to bring that vision to bear. And you'll hear some of that today as we, as we share the story of what we look, look at for 2020. This morning uh, is the convergence of, of the work of, of some, some folks that I really want to say thank you to. The Kelly School is a big community. We serve 12,000 students. One of the, arguably maybe the largest business school in the nation. There's only a couple that can come close to serving 12,000 on two campuses. And the Business Outlook Panel is a long tradition that is, is organized by our Indiana Business Research Center. And I want to thank Tim Slaper and Carol Rogers, who are both co-directors. Carol leads the charge here in Indianapolis and Tim down in Bloomington and sort of uh, helping us to, to organize the forecast. And you'll have available on your table sort of the, the hard copy of the, for, of the forecast that's come together from the panel of faculty that have put these together. So I want to give a shout out to the Indiana Business Research Center. And they continue to be really, they, they're the national model for a business research center on a college camp in a, in a, in a, in a state university. Also, the Kelly School Alumni Association, 117,000 living alum. 27,000 are here in Indianapolis. Isn't that amazing? There's 27,000 of, 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 of us who graduated from the Kelly School. And they're here to, 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 to roll up their sleeves and help get the work done that the Kelly School is leading. So we want to thank Jen Goins and the staff from the, from the Alumni Association who, all, who really organized this event this morning. Furthermore, I want to thank our faculty and staff from uh, the Kelly School Indianapolis campus. They truly have embraced this, this mission of, of driving prosperity in the region. And they're here today and, and have contributed to our panel. Also, Ryan Brewer, Ryan Brewer a finance professor from, from Columbus, our uh, Columbus camp, uh, IUPU Columbus, who wrote our Indi Indiana forecast, has helped inform what you're going to hear this morning. So let's give all of those folks a hand in the Kelly School family. So without further ado, let's get down to it and talk about 2020. When I first heard somebody use the term the year 2020, that's like next year, didn't it like, didn't like, doesn't like wake you up? I, I grew up in the, in the 80s and by now we were supposed to be having this Outlook panel at, at a space station. I can't believe we're still sitting on the ground, but thank, thank the good Lord for gravity. Um, and talk about gravity. Reality is certainly keeping us close to the ground in terms of economic reality. So today we have an esteemed panel of, of, of three colleagues here. Uh, we're going to hear from Professor Kyle Anderson first on, the, on, our, on our forecast for, for the uh, U.S. economy and what the next year we think holds in store. Uh, Professor Anderson is, a, is chair of our Evening MBA program and is involved in a lot of our outreach efforts. You've probably seen him in the media quite a bit. He's a fellow economist uh, like myself. Next is uh, Professor Kathy Bonzer-Neal. Uh, Professor of Finance, Professor Bonzer-Neal is going to share a forecast for the global economy. As we'll talk about, Indiana has one of the biggest, relative to the size of the state economy, we're one of the biggest exporters in the country. And a lot of that's driven by manufacturing. And so the global economy, what's happening beyond our borders, especially as geopolitical relation, relationships and, and, and trade wars assert themselves, that has an impact here. And so Professor Bonzer-Neal is going to uh, give us that forecast. Professor Bonzer-Neal also uh, served as, as evening MBA, our, our chair of our part-time MBA program here in the IUPUI campus. And she helped lead our program redesign, which we've just launched this fall. Um, and I'm very pleased to, after, after Professor Bonzer-Neal gives us uh, the global forecast, then we'll pass it on to Ian Nicolini, which we're very proud to have on the panel. Um, uh, and uh, Ian Nicolini is Vice President of Economic Development at the Indy Chamber. Uh, the Kelly Schools had the pleasure of working with Ian on multiple projects, 
And Ian is actually, is actually teaches for us in a, an associate faculty capacity here on the SPIA campus here at IUPUI. But previously, Ian served as town manager at Speedway, right Ian? And Ian works with the, the mayor, mayor's office and the chamber and the whole business community on a number of great initiatives that are really changing the national conversation on how a region addresses its economic challenges in an inclusive way. And so Ian's gonna give us a different perspective on what the region holds for 2020, not only from an economic forecast perspective, but more importantly, what are we doing as a region to make ourselves competitive? So without further ado, I'm gonna hand it off to Professor Anderson to talk about the US economy. All right, thanks Phil, and, and thanks for coming out this morning. And not for the first time, I have had to follow Phil and will not be able to match his enthusiasm or his optimism in the outlook here. Um, but if we, as we look at the data, a year ago we forecasted that the economy would improve in 2019. And it turns out we were probably overly optimistic. What we're seeing in 2019 relative to 2018 is actually a slowdown. We're projecting that 2019 will finish out with about 2% growth, which is worse than what 2018 was. And it's really, if you go back since the Great Recession, we've averaged about 2.3, 2.4% growth in the 11 year expansion that we've had since the Great Recession. And to come in below that number is, is certainly a little bit disappointing but also it's what we're projecting out in 2020 that we'll have another year of slower growth. So if we break that down, why, what, what's really going on? You know, GDP, if you, you remember your macro course, is kind of made up of, of household consumption, of investment, of government spending, of exports. And what is driving the economy right now is household spending. It's up about 3% year over year. The household sector is quite strong and is probably being driven by a good labor market. So that all sounds good. What is dragging the economy back is business investment right now and residential investment as well are both flat to negative along with manufacturing that is flat right now and, and also potentially negative. So we're seeing economic growth being driven in, in, a, in a very kind of unbalanced way. So we've got household spending and government spending, which are up, but investment is, is down quite a bit. And weak investment numbers are really pretty troubling given that we're in a very low interest rate environment. You would expect that with low interest rates, businesses would have incentives and high consumer spending but a lot of this probably tracks back to trade frictions that are going on in the market right now and a lot of policy uncertainty that is causing businesses to pull back quite a bit. Net exports is also a, a negative on the economy and so a lot of this has to do with the global outlook and Kathy's gonna go into much more detail about that, but we're feeling the impact of global economic weakness right now. As I mentioned, there's some clear bright spots in the economy. We're at what we'd consider full employment. Unemployment is at 3.5%. To put that in perspective, if it goes down to 3.4%, we'd be at the lowest unemployment level since the post-war boom of the 1950s. So our job market is really good right now. We're seeing moderate wage growth, about 2.8% which is, you know, wage growth is kind of a, a good news, bad news kind of thing. We all want some wage growth will, will help the economy and we all want higher paychecks. On the other hand, as a business manager's wage growth can, can drive inflation and, you know, exacerbate hiring challenges, create issues with, with profit margins. So we expect that wage growth will continue over the next year at a modest level. Looking to 2020, we're forecasting 2% growth again for the coming year. If anything, that may be optimistic. If you look at kind of a broad set of forecasts, kind of the average outlook, we, we always like to benchmark with, with other models. Average outlook is more around 1.7, 1.8%. 
Now, a couple months ago, we were looking very much like we might be going into recession in 2020, and we've had some better data come in between, you know, since then. So it's not a, a completely negative outlook, um, but it's certainly not where we want to be. And our a forecast is always, you know, subject to, to volatility, subject to change. But I think this year is especially so. And the reasons for that are, are a couple. Um, as I mentioned, we've got this weird imbalance where households are spending a lot, but businesses aren't investing very much. See, that's not going to remain that way. One of two things is going to happen, right? Either this business investment weakness is going to slow the economy and consumers will pull back. And that's kind of the recession risk story going on or consumers will continue spending, businesses will, will feel better about the economy, maybe we get some positive trade news, and then business investment picks up and there's potential on the upside. The other, of course, risk with all of 2020 is a political risk um, between trade uncertainty. I think the, the election year is hardly something that's going to bring a lot of confidence in people. There's, you know, if we think about an uncertainty model, I think 2020 is ripe for, you know, political uncertainty that will lead to economic uncertainty. And then there's other, besides political, there are other international issues that will really, you know, either positively or negatively affect the economy. So our outlook for 2020 is, is not great. It's not a crash and burn recession story, but it is slower growth than what we've seen over the last several years. So with that, I'll turn it over to Kathy and let her talk about kind of the global outlook. Well, thanks Kyle and thanks to everyone for being here. Um, you know, it's kind of funny when you uh, go to bed and you have a talk prepared and then you wake up and things change. Uh, so if you ca caught the news, uh, there has been some recent positive news on the trade end that perhaps an agreement will be reached to pull back on tariffs that have been causing the slow growth, uh, uh, contributing to the slow growth that we've been seeing. So I'd like to talk about a little bit about what happened globally in 2019 and then look at the forecast for 2020, uh, keeping in mind what Kyle just said about the tremendous volatility and, and still uncertainty that we're facing. So at the end of uh, 2019, by the end of 2019, the International Monetary Fund is forecasting that global growth will be only around 3%. And to put that in context, a year ago this time when we were, were looking ahead, uh, the forecast was that global growth would be 3.7%. So we're down significantly from what we expected this time last year. And this in fact is the slowest rate of global growth since the financial crisis ended in, in 2009. Uh, so this down, downgrade in, in global growth isn't just uh, in the United States, it's, it's everywhere. It's in advanced economies as well as in emerging economies, which traditionally have grown you know, very quickly, they continue to grow faster than the US, but they have advanced economies and developing economies outlook has been downgraded by about 0.6 percentage points for 2019, that's, that's significant. So what's caused the slowdown in growth? Well, trade tariffs and uh, uncertainty, as Kyle mentioned, not just here, but globally has called, caused a pullback in investment uh, pullback in manufacturing, which uh, has significantly affected the outlook of growth. Um, in addition, when you have trade tariffs imposed, it, it causes higher cost. And that will also start to affect businesses as they're seeing those higher costs and as consumers are starting to see those costs passed along into what they're now buying. In addition, when you have tariffs, that causes disruptions in production. And so as we see firms trying to figure out what, where to move their supply chains, given this uncertain tariff um, environment, that can lead to a loss of efficiency and productivity. And that could be weighing on 2019, and I think it's gonna be a factor weighing on 2020 as well. Some other reasons that have contributed to 2019 slowdown 
include a contraction in the auto sector. Uh, this is partially the result of trade effects, but also things like higher emission standards that are, have been imposed in Europe and uh, an elimination of a tax break that China had, which was encouraging a lot of auto sales in, in that country. And then third, a market, a market slowdown in China's economy itself. So China was growing at 6.6% in 2018. It's down to 6.1% in 2019. So trade, trade uncertainty, downgrade in, in China, which is, of course, the second largest economy in the world, and uh, factors affecting global production are contributing to this slowdown. Well, the good news is that the global economy is going to rebound a bit. Uh, expectation by the International Monetary Fund is that it's going to grow about 3.4%. And that's been helped by accommodative monetary policies, not just in the United States, but in China, in Europe, in the UK, and in Japan. So central banks all over the world have lowered interest rates and pursued uh, more accommodative monetary policies to help with this environment. And that certainly has uh, forestalled a, an even worse drop in growth. Estimates are that growth might have been about 0.5 percentage points lower without these interest rate cuts that we have been seeing. Uh, however, the source of this growth, realize, is skewed toward emerging markets. So as we see a rebound in global growth, advanced economies are still only going to grow about 1.7% in 2020. Most of the rebound is going to come from emerging markets. Uh, that's so, and that's not going to happen in China. In China, growth is projected to continue to decrease below what some call a you know, kind of a bellwether benchmark of 6%. So they're expected to grow only about 5.8%. And that's, a, that's about a whole percentage point below where they, they have been in the last couple of years. So slowdown in China is significant. Now, some of that slowdown in China has been anticipated. Um, and that's because of some demographic influences, the aging of the population, as well as a shift in the structure of China's economy away from manufacturing toward more of a services-based and away from focused on investment and exports to more consumption. So this is consistent with the maturing of China's economy. That said, the uh, decrease in growth has been accelerated by some of the trade tensions and tariffs that we've been seeing. Where else in, in the world? Well, if we look at Europe, uh, Europe is flirting with recession. Uh, some more recent positive indicators suggest <laughs> that some economies are, are going to hopefully avoid that. Germany is, is uh, seeing significant risks. Germany depends on exports for about 50% of its GDP. Germany is a, a large economy in the world and a major trading partner of the United States. So Germany uh, may not pull out of a recession. Indicators are, are not positive for that. Eurozone as a whole, um, we'll see what happens with Brexit, of course. So uh, what could happen between the EU and the UK could have, will certainly have impacts on on Europe's growth, but even so, it's not expected to be that much higher than, than about a percent. So Europe is going to be challenged. Um, of course, uh, Japan continues on its slow growth path, unfortunately, and uh, it's not expected to grow much more than 0.5%, so barely above zero in uh, 2020. Now, that's despite the fact that both Europe and Japan have pursued uh, negative interest rate policies and very accommodative monetary policies. So you might ask, well, how can it be that a nominal interest rate is negative? What does that mean? Well, it means you put your money in the bank and you pay to keep your money in the bank. What kind of deal is that, right? So you're paying to keep your money in the bank. That does mean it's a lot cheaper to borrow. So you might be asking, well, with negative interest rates, why aren't we seeing a boom in investment spending in Europe? One thing to keep in mind is these negative interest rates are really reflecting dire and, and fairly anemic growth in Europe. And as we know, businesses are not going to make an investment unless they expect a return. Well, if, if growth is expected to be anemic in Europe, even negative interest rates won't help pull it out. So Europe is going to be challenged, um, and I, I don't see that turning around in the next couple of years. 
Um, closer to home, Canada and Mexico, our largest trading partners, have also seen a decrease in growth. And uh, they both, neither will be expected to grow more than 2%, even though Mexico is, is more of an emerging economy, uh, usually sees faster growth, but a combination of domestic, new domestic policies, as well as the trade tensions. Mexico also depends on about 40% of its GDP on exports. So very export dependent, very challenged in this environment. So um, one of the economies that will be a success story, I predict, is, is India. As we look at the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, Brazil, Russia, South Africa um, are seeing growth rates below 2% for 2020. China, as I said, just under 6%. India, on the other hand, is expected to rebound from about a little over 6% back to about 7% in 2020. So India is a, a significant economy growing, and that, that is probably going to be the bright spot. So as we know, um, again, Indiana is dependent on this global environment. As we've seen this global environment uh, growth decrease, and we're not in recession, but significant decrease in growth, some rebound, hopefully in 2020, that looks positive, but still uh, there's some caution lights ahead for Indiana's economy, which is very heavy, heavily dependent on manufacturing. And so I'm going to turn it over to Ian to talk more about uh, some of those impacts. Thanks, Kathy, and good morning, everyone. Um, so we punch well above our weight class as a region uh, when it comes to advanced industries. About 12% of our economy comes from those traded sector, advanced industry uh, type of jobs. If you compare that to other Midwestern major cities, that number's closer to eight. So when you hear, um, when you hear Kathy and, and you hear Kyle talking about um, some of the challenges that we face, uh, it, it creates some impetus for policies that focus on building a more resilient economy in the Indy region. Um, but before I talk about some of that, I want to start with some of the, the major strategic focuses in economic development as a region. A couple of years ago, we did some national research about Indianapolis and, and the Indy region's brand around the country. We did a national survey of people who, who had some connection to Indiana. Maybe they're a Kelly School student living in California. Maybe they were a New Yorker that grew up in, in Indiana. And we said, um, tell us about your impression of Indiana. And two-thirds of the responses uh, were no impression. It wasn't positive or negative. It just didn't exist. In fact, uh, you couldn't visualize living in Indianapolis. If I say, what's it like to live in Seattle? You have a mental image pop into your head. Or what's it like to live in Denver? There it is. What's it like to live in Kansas City? Well, okay, then it's, I, I draw a blank. And, and that's what happens with Indianapolis. But I, I say all this because that's actually a net positive for us because it means we have an entire ability to build a brand. And why that matters is because we have to attract talent to fill the jobs of the future to central Indiana. If we don't have a vibrant and inviting image uh, that, is, that tells our story effectively, uh, we're not going to compete with, with other peer cities. And so as part of that, uh, our work with, uh, at the Indy Chamber, with the city of Indianapolis, mayors from around the region, and a ton of very active business uh, leaders in the community has been to compile uh, our stories in Indianapolis and target through SEO, uh, search engine optimization, specific people with Indiana and Hoosier connections all over the country uh, to get them to come back. And starting to see a little bit of, of early results from that. But it's not a branding exercise. It's really one more about telling the story of what it's like to live in the Indy region. I think because most folks can't visualize uh, what it's like to be here, when you match that with this Hoosier humility that we all have where we don't do a good enough job of espousing what a great place this is to live and raise a family and start a business and invest, uh, we set ourselves up at a disadvantage. And so uh, that's, that's the big strategic focus as a region. I think you'll also see uh, a lot of conversations, you've, you've, you've seen it in the papers, about uh, regional governance and regional financing. So the challenges that um, Indianapolis faces as a job center uh, versus some of the uh, the way that we finance government 
In Indiana, you pay your income taxes where you live, not where you work. So that could create some disparities in terms of how uh, tax dollars are invested. Uh, you see it in potholes and in, in policing and, and the like. Uh, so what are some regional strategies? How does, how does the Indy region come together uh, to really show some leadership? Uh, you, there are other regions that have done a, a, a successful job in identifying strategies to move a region forward uh, in a way that's more inclusive. If you look at Minneapolis uh, or Denver, where you have a structure of governance. And so these are the big conversations that are taking place at the regional level. Um, my team and I focus specifically on Indianapolis and Marion County, uh, where uh, Phil began this morning talking about uh, the importance of economic mobility. And again, when, when you hear some of these trade challenges and then you look at trends around automation, uh, the importance of being able to attract and develop talent from within is critical. So in 2017, we worked with the Brookings Institution on a study that looked at uh, some, of the, some of the structural barriers, some of the structural challenges in Indianapolis's economy. And it was an inclusive growth learning lab. What we took away from that was that Indianapolis has essentially a two-sided economy. You could have a city where uh, there's, there's an 80% increase in poverty over a 10-year span, but you could have an economic development organization that works on projects that create or expanded 25,000 jobs in a five-year period, making $60,000 a year. That both of those two realities could happen. That we could be the fifth fastest growing tech economy in the country, but yet still have some of the highest poverty rates in the Midwest. And so the, the business case that came out of that work was that strategies that are aimed at economic mobility, developing skills, partnering with workforce development organizations, partnering with, with educational institutions, and then working to, to advance entrepreneurs, uh, were going to be winning strategies going forward. As an economic development organization, uh, we work with companies every day to attract their investment or get them to expand here in Indiana. And there are a lot of tools at play uh, that, that, that can be deployed to make those investments happen for us to win. Um, and what we've, what we've learned though from the deployment of those incentives, think about things like tax breaks, is that while they created a lot of advanced industry jobs, they, the, the investments in incented projects disproportionately uh, went to communities that were low to moderate income, uh, when you look at minority populations and who fills those jobs, that's where the results uh, are, were not as strong. And so we said, what could, what could be done to ensure that, we're, that government is leveraging its public policies, its resources and tools to advance business growth in a way that's going to lead to a more inclusive and resilient economy uh, that would only strengthen the region's economy around it. And so um, some, some great work that Central Indiana Corporate Partnership put forth about opportunity industries, this really focused on those traded sector jobs, identified that Central Indiana has to create about 115,000 traded sector jobs. These are jobs that offer, you know, let's say have a minimum of $18 an hour plus benefits, offer a pathway to the middle class. Uh, 115,000 of those jobs needed to be created in order to lift 70% of struggling workers out of a struggling status, for lack of a better phrase. And so 115,000, that's, that's a lot, that's daunting. So how do we leverage the kinds of tools that we have available to do that? Uh, how do we make sure that we're working with companies that understand that their ability to remove barriers for their workforce is a, is a really solid investment in their bottom line? Uh, and how can we leverage incentives to do that? The largest barriers that that research concluded were transportation, training, and childcare. So if you have a system that's leveraging public incentives, why not use those public incentive dollars to remove those barriers? It's only a, an, an investment uh, in, in a company's bottom line. And so uh, beginning 2000, January 1st, 2020, we will have uh, worked with the city of Indianapolis to reform its scoring system, uh, for incentives and the way those incentives are deployed to focus on those traded sector, middle-class jobs, uh, and, and, and making sure those investments are going to removing the barriers to workers getting, uh, getting to work.
The other, uh, the other big focus in 2020 that you'll, you'll be seeing and hearing more about is a focus on entrepreneurship. Indianapolis has, in Indiana, has lagged in young companies for a few years now. And part of that, um, that isn't because, uh, part of that is because we have such a strong, uh, uh, we have such a strong traded sector economy. There's just, you, being an entrepreneur isn't as automatic a choice when you have manufacturing jobs, tech jobs. You can work in logistics. However, uh, it's still a really important, if you look at the future of uh, retail and e-commerce, you know, having those opportunities to build and make and sell things here locally uh, are going to be really important. It's also uh, an issue when it comes to access to capital. We hear from subcontractors working on city projects that to be able to rent equipment, hire a crew, do the work, wait nine, 60 to 90 days to get paid is too long. Uh, so we're working on a program actually with the Kelly School of Business is going to look through um, what are some of those, what are some of those challenges and what are the best ways to deploy small business capital, usually through not-for-profit organizations, community development financial institutions, to make sure that, that subs and, and particularly women, minority, veteran-owned, disability-owned, uh, business entities are able to compete for those projects. Um, and so that'll be some work uh, really ramping up in, in early 2020. And I think you could also think about how, how that investment, not just for contractors' access to capital, but for retailers, for Main Street economy. Uh, there are still a lot of opportunities for self-employment to be a pathway uh, to a sustainable economy in Indianapolis and uh, leveraging some of the horsepower and business that, that a chamber and that all of you being engaged in uh, can do, we think that there's some really unique strategies that are gonna be able to, uh, to deploy capital, technical assistance uh, into community businesses and increase the rate of young companies. So just to, to summarize it all, we have a region that is a blank slate for, for investment. Uh, the, the ability to build an image has to be priority number one. But for that to be successful, we've got to play in the same sandbox as a region together. And we do that pretty well when you look at how, the, how governments work together, the, relationship that, the relationships that mayors have throughout a region. But the way that we actually fund basic services is something that we all have to have a stake in uh, and, and finding a solution for that if we build a more resilient and inclusive economy, and if we're focused, and if we're specifically focused on removing the sort of racial and spatial barriers that, that limit an individual's ability to access the middle class. And these are things like education, workforce training, transportation, and childcare. Uh, if we're intentional about how we invest in those, in those activities, we're going to improve outcomes. And then lastly, our ability to come up with creative solutions, to grow small businesses, to encourage entrepreneurs, um, and to broaden participation in the economy are going to be what gets us through 2020 and into a much more resilient future. Thanks. Thanks, Ian. Uh, I'm going to briefly share some things that the Kelly School's doing, but just to, to tee you up, think, be thinking about some, we're going to have about 15 minutes for Q&A. If we could, we got two microphones. Jen, could somebody kind of get the microphones and be ready to hand them around perhaps in just a minute. But uh, just to build on, if you listen to what Ian just said and you listen to the environment that Kyle and Kathy describe, there's a lot of challenges out there. And what Ian describes for our region is really a challenge for our institutions of higher education, for all of them including Indiana University. And in the tradition of the Kelly School, right, being one of the most innovative business schools in the world, the proud tradition of being a first mover, we are answering this call to action. And I want to share with you a couple of ways. Um, and we're, again, we're not here to talk about the Kelly School programs, but again, this is about the Kelly School hosting a front porch and driving, driving positive change that, that, that leads to more prosperity in this region. And if you were to summarize what Ian just said, it comes down to graduating skilled talent. And while we do that, 
we make economic mobility a competitive asset in Indianapolis. We talk about infrastructure and great trails and, and a great football team as competitive assets to draw in talent. Guess what? Economic mobility can be just as powerful an asset. And so what we have started to do is completely refigure and redesign our academic programs to align with the talent needs here in this region. I mentioned that, that Kyle, uh, Kyle and Kathy were part of a, the launch of a redesign of our part-time MBA program. Our part-time MBA program, ranked number ninth in the nation on this campus, has a proud tradition of graduating the CEOs that serve the nonprofits and the companies and the government agencies here in this city. So we reconfigured that curriculum, but what we've done in that curriculum is, is that we have a capstone project required now of every student. It's a consulting project with Indiana businesses that has local impact. Every one of our MBA students is gonna be doing that. That's part of that design. Again, integrating, bringing ourselves closer to blur that line between classroom, city, and workplace. With our new evening MBA curriculum being launched, we're now working to redesign our undergraduate program here on the IUPUI campus with, with the plans for launch in fall 2021. And our vision there is that we will change the national conversation on how a world-class business school delivers undergraduate management education in a thriving urban environment. And the way we do that is with very progressive integration of work and learn. And you'll be hearing more about this as, as we start to roll this out. Our goal is to help reduce the, re, the, the recruitment and retention costs of Indianapolis companies. Because if we can do that as a business school, we can make Indianapolis companies more competitive. But we've got, we've got companies, we're gonna have, we're gonna have a, a precipitous, precipitous decline in the number of high school graduates each year. And we also have 10,000, in the United States, we have 10,000 Americans leaving the labor force every day because of the baby boomer retirement. The war for talent is going to go nuclear. And we want the Kelly School to be positioned to help our companies here in this region fight, that, fight, that, fight, fight for that talent. And what better way to do that than when, when, our, when our first year students arrive on campus, they've got an apprenticeship waiting for them. 70% of our students work anyway. Let's make it easy and convenient for them to work in where they, they want to major in and have their career. And actually, this vision is partly inspired by our work with the Chamber on the Leadership Exchange. We went to Denver, and we saw what Colorado was doing with apprenticeships. And lastly, before we go to Q&A, uh, Ian mentioned some, some more on-the-ground work in the city. We're working with the Chamber, with the Business Ownership Initiative, on a pilot where we deploy alumni, many of whom of you are part of. Imagine, imagine a program where we deploy Kelly alumni to be mentors for businesses being shepherded in the business ownership initiative at the chamber. And it's not just a, it's, it's a very well-structured, facilitated experience. This would be a way to scale the ability of alumni to give back to the region. And as, as Ian mentioned, there's an opportunity here to focus in entrepreneurial areas and economically challenged areas of the city. And we've also been working with the Mayor's Office of Minority and Women Business Development to help build that infrastructure. And we look forward, Ian, to, to working on that as we go through in 2020. Anyway, let's open it up here. Who's got, who's, who's got, a, who's got a great question to start us off? We got one back here. Hey, Ian. How you doing? Alan Galloway. Good to see you. I, pro I probably had a long Tuesday night, right? <laughs> um, but one thing, I, this is a question for Ian. Uh, uh, I, I'm trying to be nice here. Why did you not mention foreign investment as a, a primary economic driver for expansion? I think I, um, I, I probably could have been more specific when I was talking about our advanced industries and traded sectors, but that's, um, as uh, my fellow panelists had talked about, the um, Indiana does punch above its weight class in, in its foreign direct investment because of that. Uh, we have stuff to export. Um, Alan's question about Tuesday night, my wife is running for town council and Speedway, and as of yesterday, was down by one vote with 22 votes cast. So if there's any, ever any questions about whether or not your vote matters, <laughs> just stop by the Nicolini household. Thanks, Alan. 
Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, I think that this question is um, probably for Kathy and maybe Kyle. Um, one of the biggest things that is facing the world is the um, a global climate change and the effects that that is having, um, both in the, um, uh, when you think about manufacturing and the, the costs that are not captured in the uh, environmental impact of uh, importing and, and manufacturing, moving goods around uh, that doesn't get reflected in the price so it doesn't become a natural um, part of the, um, the give and take of the uh, free market. So what I'm wondering, and of course also the, uh, the component of the um, market that is the creation of more environmentally friendly kinds of materials, so solar panels and, and, thing, and windmills and things like that. So what I'm wondering from, from um, anyone on the panel, but maybe specifically the, uh, the global effect and the, uh, the, the national effect is, you know, what, what do you see, how do you see that playing into uh, the immediate future of the economic growth round? Um, well, I, I think we, we are seeing some of those effects in um, areas where increased regulations have been imposed. And in the short term, trying to meet those regulations is implying some cutback in production. And, and also there's a waiting for, uh, for a cheaper way to be meeting some of those, those requirements. So I mentioned that uh, in the auto sector, particularly in Europe, this has been felt because of um, increased regulations there. And down the road, of course, this is going to have a positive impact on, on the environment, but short term, uh, the auto industry is certainly feeling the repercussions of that till they re-engineer and um, uh, figure out how to, how to meet some of these standards in a, in a cost-efficient way. So, you know, I, I think there's, uh, a short-term challenge for companies to meet uh, regulations that that are coming and and some of which are here. Uh, Long-term, I, I think they will they, they will adjust. And so, in terms of how is economic growth measures capturing that GDP does not you're correct does not explicitly measure uh, the environment. Uh, but that said, it, it is relevant to note that that economic growth long term is associated with better environmental and health outcomes. So as countries develop and and move up the the uh, income ladder, that they can make more of those investments short term that can be um, a cost to them long-term uh, a benefit, both in terms of the environment and in terms of growth. Yeah, I would just add that, I mean, this is an area where we're seeing a lack of policy leadership. I think most economists would prefer that the way we address some of these issues is with a broad-based carbon tax, which would capture, you know, would more accurately reflect the costs of this economic, the polluting activities um, and what we see instead is kind of a, a mishmash of, of regulations where Germany, as Kathy talked about, you've got some countries that are more restrictive. You've got California imposing its own um, regulatory policy because Washington, D.C. doesn't. And I mean, this is, a, I think, a, a great failing of our, our current political system where, I mean, I, I don't think it would be hard to come up with kind of a grand bargain where you would have something that's that's a tax incentive or a, a tax policy that's you know maybe more market friendly than a lot of these regulatory environments, um, and yet make significant progress towards environmental goals. That's there ought to be a common ground there, and we're we're just not seeing it. I'm going to ask a real practical question that I think might be on a lot of people's minds, and that's our retirement portfolios. And so I. Kyle and Kathy, uh, when you look at 2020, what's your read on the financial markets? And Ian, I'm curious, when you look at 2020, if you were sort of, to, what are some of our hottest industries and businesses that, that, are, that are good investments right now in, Indiana, in Indianapolis? But let's kind of start with the national, the national markets. What would you have to say about that, Kyle and Kathy? I, if I were looking at, you know, financial, I mean, predicting stock market returns is, is about, you know, one of the most dangerous, if not foolish <laughs> endeavors um, oh, entertain us. Yeah, so, so having said that, I will proceed to do that, right? Um, it, 
stocks, stock valuations right now are a little bit frothy. They're, I mean, the earnings that we're seeing right now have not been great from companies. They've exceeded expectations in this quarter, but that's in part because the, the earnings expectations have been ratcheted down so low. Um, so the, I think there remain challenges in the market for, and again, with the wide uncertainty of outcomes in 2020, whether those be political, economic, all of that is going to, to factor into the market. So, you know, I would have some caution, you know, we, we can all talk about if you're in it for the long term, then, then there's probably no reason to take action and, and just be there. But I would suggest that, you know, 2020 is gonna be a year of, of high volatility and, and perhaps lower than average returns. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that. Just on the, the global end and in terms of fixed income, interest rates, I, I don't see interest rates rising uh, to um, be able to provide a, a really strong source of income anytime soon. So interest rates are gonna remain low uh, globally and uh, probably in the United States as well. As, as the Fed takes this wait and see approach going into 2020. In terms of stocks globally, I, I think you, uh, you have to take a long-term perspective and look at economic growth around the world. I mentioned that the recovery in global growth is really being driven by growth rebound in emerging markets. So there's still a lot of growth potential in those markets. You see a rising middle class in many of these markets. And that's, that's eventually gonna be reflected in, in stock returns. So diversification is always a, a good piece of advice. In terms of um, industry trends, growth industries in central Indiana, we continue to punch well above our weight class when it comes to tech companies that are, that are in marketing uh, for, for a region that needs to market itself better. It seems like a growth opportunity. Um, the, um, that expands into this sort of business to business technology as well. You look at a company like Emphasis locating their, uh, their North American training center at the former airport uh, terminal. That's gonna host well over a thousand employees. I think they're up around 700 having just made their first investment two years ago. Um, if you look at uh, if you look at a lot of our legacy manufacturing companies, how they're shifting to a more technological uh, based workforce, you're, you're not seeing manufacturers moving totally toward automated uh, workforces. You are having highly skilled individuals working with uh, working with automation, and so um, that trend continues. Allison Transmissions making a, a massive investment in Technology Center on 10th Street. Uh, Rolls-Royce is, is competing for the uh, B-52 bomber re-engining project. Uh, so a lot of these, uh, you know, what we think of is kind of rooted in traditional manufacturing, but embracing much newer technologies. That confluence is where we're seeing a lot of the activity. Uh, have seen some slowdown these last six months in the in growth in traditional manufacturing at the local level, but as those as those sectors are more enhanced with technology automation. Uh, you're, you're starting to see some interesting growth opportunities there. Uh, that's, that's, we're going to continue to see growth in healthcare and life sciences. Um, those are areas where, where our region is very competitive. Um, and, uh, and in logistics. Great. We have a question over here. Oh, uh, <clears throat> sorry. You started to uh, talk about it briefly, Kathy. Um, I want to talk a little bit about monetary policy. Um, Obviously, the Treasury's been quite a roller coaster ride over the last 12 to 18 months. Um, and now, yeah, you mentioned again briefly some negative interest rates throughout the Eurozone. And now you have some of the talking heads saying, well, now we, we need to follow our competition down with, with our overall rate environment and our benchmark rates. Um, what do you see as some of the pitfalls to that or perhaps some of the benefits to that? And where do you see uh, Fed monetary policy as you look at the minutes and going into 2020? You see a continued more accommodative stance. You mentioned kind of a wait and see approach, <clears throat> but um, if you could expand on that a bit as we move into uh, next year, I'll try again. Trying to predict Fed policy is a little bit like predicting the the stock market. But um, based on my reading of of policy, uh, they they had three cuts this year and um, fairly quickly in this second half. 
uh, we're seeing po some positive, more positive indicators coming out of purchasing managers indices um, and some other you know, factors. So it's still a bit mixed. I, I think, and that was reflected in the Fed minutes, that uh, the Fed is, is interested in being patient right now. The, uh, you know, what they'll be looking for are any additional risks to growth that are surprises such as, I, I think they honestly were surprised by the impact of the trade uncertainty and the uh, tariffs and how that, that was impacting the U.S. and global markets. So if we have another shock like that, uh, then we could see another interest rate cut. Do I see the Fed going negative uh, like Europe? I, 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 again, I hate to predict interest rates, but personally, I, I do not. And, and I'd just like to say again that I, it's a dramatic, I, I view it as a dramatic change to move interest rates into negative territory. And so far, the evidence on the benefit of negative interest rates is not overwhelming. We're seeing continued low growth in Japan. We see continued low growth in Europe. So you don't see it sparking huge amounts of investment. The other concern with such low interest rates is honestly a buildup of debt and a move into risky assets. And uh, that can happen within Europe, it can happen overseas. They can, money can be shifted around the globe very easily. And so if we see a buildup in some of those risks and the, actually the, in the Global Financial Stability Report that the IMF published in October, they have, note, they have um, highlighted that as one of the risks in the current environment. So uh, I, I honestly anticipate for the rest of this year, maybe into early next year, we'll see, have more of a wait and see approach, see how the economy evolves. And uh, it would take a significant shock, I believe, for the United States to be moving down to zero again and I, and considering negative. I don't think there's a lot of support at the, uh, in the Federal Reserve right now for that kind of move. Thank you, Kathy. And I think we have time for one more question. So um, Calvin Sanders, uh, IU Health and 2018 IU Kelly grad. So I was curious, it came up a little bit earlier, but particularly for sort of the role that healthcare plays nationally and also for the region with four major hospital systems around. What kind of insight do you have for the sort of projected uh, healthcare growth for that industry uh, in the coming year? I mean, a lot of this is just demographic driven, right? I mean, healthcare is going to be a growing sector. So I, I don't think there's uh, any doubt on the demand side. We're going to continue to grow that. It's, it's going to increase as a share of the economy. Um, so I think from that point of view, you can project out a, a healthy growth there. I think the challenge will be more on the payer side and uncertainty around whether it's you know affordable care. Obviously, we've got an election where um, one party's talking a lot about Medicare for all and kind of, I mean, we, we've got significant changes on the horizon in terms of healthcare policy and reimbursement. So demand side is gonna be there. There's gonna be jobs and needs. That's, you know, I, I think that's undoubtful, you know, Without doubt, that's going to be the case. The question is on on the reimbursement side. Kevin, one thing that's that's kind of we're doing interesting. Uh, we're doing that I think is interesting here locally um, is working with healthcare uh, and and higher education. IUPUI being one of them, better understand what they're purchasing. Uh, that leverages uh, well into the billions of dollars in spend. Um, that. A lot of it leaves the state of Indiana, and so we're uh, we're working with a number of those anchor institutions now to better understand uh, what they're buying and where it's coming from, so that we can work with entrepreneurs and local companies to get them ready to compete for local sourcing opportunities. So it, it's it doesn't tell you much about growth in the industry itself, but when you think about the the economic development potential of some of these untapped resources, and higher ed being one of those, healthcare being another. Um, it, it really does create some unique synergies that, that we're interested in learning more about. Thank you so much for listening. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, it would mean a great deal for us if you could rate and leave a review. And if you're listening to a platform that has a subscribe option, be sure to subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as they come out.
This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, where our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.